0: This is Dr. Marty Freed,
1: Dr. Shreya Trivedi,
0: and Dr. Dave Reed. This is the Core I Am Five Pearls podcast, brought to you by Clinical Correlations,
1: bringing you high yield, evidence based pearls.
0: Today, we are discussing troponins.
1: Thank you to our peer reviewer, Dr. Ernie Mazzaferi, a cardiologist at the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center.
0: And we are so excited to introduce Dr. Dave Reed to the podcast. Woo-woo. Dave has been leading our Twelve Lead Thursday series on social media, so it's really awesome to have him on the podcast. Great to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. And thanks for working on this episode, Dave. So let's get started with some questions on the pearls we'll be covering. Test yourself by pausing after each of the questions.
1: Remember, the more you test yourself, the deeper your learning gains.
0: Pearl 1, story behind the troponin.
1: What aspects of the story are concerning in a patient with a positive troponin?
0: Pearl 2, risk stratifying calculators.
1: What's the difference between Timmy, Grace, and Heart scores? And how should we use them in the evaluation of a patient with an elevated troponin?
0: Pearl 3, trending troponins.
1: How does the change in troponin over time help with the diagnosis? And what should we consider in a patient with an uptrending troponin but an unremarkable EKG?
0: Pearl 4, prognostics.
1: What can a negative but detectable troponin tell you about any patient, not just those who do not have acute coronary syndrome?
0: And Pearl 5, a throwback pearl, first-line meds for alcohol use disorder.
1: All right, what are the first-line medications used for alcohol use disorder? So
0: listen, guys, sometimes troponins can be easy to interpret. So for example, a long-time smoker presents with sudden-onset crushing chest pain, EKG with ST elevations, and the troponin is like 20. But the rubber meets the road when that exact same patient's troponin is 0.04, or the chest pain is a bit vague, or the EKG is non-specific. So the real question is, how do we interpret troponins when the story isn't so cut and dry?
1: Ooh, this is going to be good. I cannot wait to dive deeper into this. But before we do so, let's take a step back and ask ourselves, what exactly is a troponin?
2: Yeah, so this is super important to keep in mind when interpreting the test. When we say troponin, we're really referring to cardiac troponin I, which is a protein specific to cardiac myocytes and released when the cells are injured. So if you see a positive troponin, you know cardiac myocytes were injured.
1: Right. But that injury can be from ischemia, like acute coronary syndrome, or from other injury. Think about things that cause injury, like toxic injury in sepsis or myocarditis, supply demand mismatch, like in heart failure, or ventricular wall stress, like with a pulmonary emboli or valve dysfunction. And just to make
2: sure we're on the same page, what is a quote-unquote positive troponin? So that depends on the machine and the assay, but for the sake of this episode, we're going to use our lab value of over 0.06. That threshold is the 99th percentile of a healthy population. And just to get this out of the way, why aren't we discussing CKMB? Well, before troponins, CKMB was another marker for myocyte injury. Many of us probably remember being taught in med school how the pharmacokinetics of CKMB, the quick up, quick down line on a graph may have theoretically been useful for reinfarction. That never really panned out, and the consensus by cardiologists is that there's no value added by CKMB now that we have troponins. CKMB can be falsely elevated in skeletal muscle injury, and troponins are just more sensitive and specific.
0: We'll put up a link in our show notes to a 2017 paper in JAMA Internal Medicine that does a really great job reviewing the data behind CKMB as well as provides a blueprint for a hospital-based QI project that can help providers move away from that test. All right, let's go on to our first pearl.
1: Let's start with a case. We have a 72-year-old female with a history of hypertension and gout who presents to the ED with two episodes of acute chest pain while washing dishes. Initial troponin is 0.05. That is below our lab cutoff. We spoke to several cardiologists, and here's what one would be thinking right now.
3: So that trope is negative, but it's also detectable. And that's a very important
0: distinction to make when you're thinking about a patient. That was Dr. Greg Katz, a third-year cardiology fellow at NYU. He's received numerous teaching awards, so we really appreciated his input. We'll hear from him periodically during the podcast to get his take. And honestly, when I'm hearing this case, what I'm
3: hearing is an elderly woman with gout and hypertension, so two coronary disease risk factors, who's having chest pain with exertion because washing dishes for some people is the most strenuous exercise that they do. And so already, I'm thinking
0: that this could be a plaque rupture. So that's interesting. That trope was within normal limits for our lab. And in the past, I might have settled with calling it negative for MI and moving on. But Greg points out that it's still detectable, and he's not ready to jump to any conclusions without a more nuanced approach.
1: Yeah, it actually seems like the least important aspect of his initial assessment seemed to be the troponin. To him, this was a patient with enough risk factors, a plausible story of exertion, that the troponin didn't comfortably rule out ACS for him.
3: I'm going to keep falling back on it's all about the story that you get. Um, but it really is all about the story that you get. And if you tell me that somebody has nausea and diaphoresis then and they're having chest pressure at the same time, I'm thinking that it's a little bit more likely to be an acute coronary syndrome, but I don't know that they don't have a viral gastroenteritis and they are having a little bit of pain from the vomiting. It's all about what the clinical story is and all of those things play play a role in how I'm sort of internally adjusting and calibrating my pretest probability of, uh, of a plaque rupture or an occluded coronary.
2: Yeah, so we really need to spend the extra few minutes to tease out the details of the story. Lots of people present weirdly with their coronary
3: disease. Diabetics, women, elderly patients, chronic kidney disease patients. And a lot. there are cultural sort of hurdles to understanding what someone's symptoms are. There are health literacy issues. There's the fact that some people are just not conditioned to understand what's going on with their body, and they know they feel off, and they can't really... How many patients have you had that just have trouble describing to you what's going
0: on? So I just really love the point that Craig is making here, guys. We always hear the phrase, patient is a poor historian, and we forget that it's not the patient's job to tell us a narrative that fits neatly within a singular illness script. That's our job. Yeah, and we absolutely need to
2: consider the barriers that exist for a patient to tell their story.
1: Right. Let's say we have a patient without any of those barriers. We get a clear chest pain history story. Now, what aspects of that chest pain story should raise our suspicion for ACS?
2: Well, we were always taught in med school how typical angina is substernal pressure that is triggered by exertion and relieved with rest or nitroglycerin. The other classic associations were radiation to the neck or left arm, diaphoresis, shortness of breath, maybe some nausea or vomiting.
1: Right. And that's what I thought too and was taught until I looked at an old JAMA study that looked at thousands of cases of MIs and their chest pain characteristics. Guys, take a guess as to what had the highest likelihood ratio to predict a true MI.
0: Exertional chest pain? Diaphoresis.
1: Okay, right. Fantastic guesses. Actually, exertional chest pain had a positive likelihood ratio of 2.4 and diaphoresis 2.0. So both
0: findings do increase the chance of finding an MI, but I've been taught that the likelihood ratios less than about 4 are really not that great.
1: So the finding with the strongest predictive power for a myocardial infarction? Radiation to the right arm or shoulder had a positive likelihood ratio of 4.7.
0: Whoa. Mm.
1: Yeah. And then radiation to both arms or shoulders came in at a likelihood ratio of 4.1. And the symptoms with the lowest likelihood ratio? That's not surprising. It's the chest pain described as pleuritic, positional, reproducible, or sharp.
2: So our first pearl about troponins is actually, troponin isn't everything. While it's specific to cardiac myocyte injury and the lab assays are really sensitive, it's not the be-all and end-all of diagnosing ACS. The cardiologists are really drilling into the background and the story to help put that troponin into a much larger context.
1: So let's dive deeper into this case. We're still in the ED. It's possibly, but not clearly ACS. Definitely gray zone of sorts. The first troponin is negative, but detectable in our patient with risk factors, exertional chest pain. You take a look at the EKG, it shows nothing more than some t wave flattening, and obviously there's no priors to compare to. So what now? What other tools can help us objectively assess the risk of ACS in these gray zone cases?
0: Well, we do have the alphabet soup of risk stratifying scores. There's the Timmy score, Heart score, and Gray score. Then I made the mistake of Googling this, and there's like seven other scores. There's the EDAC. There's the Vancouver chest pain score, because obviously Canada needs to get involved with another scoring system here.
1: Right, right. <laughs> Canada is always on top of things. but And I, and I hear your frustration, Marty. So I think what can help us is taking a step back and discussing what exactly does it mean to risk stratify?
2: Yeah, so risk stratifying is an important concept in chest pain. The key questions are, does this patient have blockages in her coronaries? Is this presentation because of that? How quickly do we need to do a cath? And finally, how sick are they? Every data point we collect will individually move our suspicion and concern for the patient up or down, and together the scores give us greater decision-making power to determine how we will proceed with treatment. All
0: right. For the purposes of simplification, we'll focus our discussion on three of the most common scores, the TIMI, the Heart, and the GRACE score.
1: Right. And I think it's worth pointing out that all of these tools can be used in patients who you suspect have ACS. But we also need to appreciate that there is no single tool that fits all scenarios. So each was validated with a particular registry. Some of the scores were included patients in the ED, while other scores enrolled those who were already admitted.
0: So true. Some of the information we're about to discuss is visually represented in a recent issue of Jack that included a table of several different scores and their component parts. We'll link that paper in our show notes.
2: So let's start with the Timmy score. This is historically the most validated. It's from a year 2000 publication, which is important to keep in mind because the troponin assay that was used back then was nowhere near as sensitive as the current tests, And they even counted patients with isolated c as having positive cardiac biomarkers. (laughs) Unforgivable! The uh, GRACE score similarly enrolled patients who were admitted with presumed ACS. A major difference here is that the GRACE study tried to encompass the whole range of different ACS presentations, and it takes hemodynamics and manifestations of heart failure into account. Because of this, it's more often used in patients who are critically ill.
1: And what about the heart score?
2: Finally, the heart score. This was designed for patients presenting to the ED with undifferentiated chest pain. It may not even be ACS. In patients with low risk of having ACS, the heart score has been shown to outperform the other two tools.
4: Hmm. So,
0: with that
2: overview of the scores, let's test drive these on our patients who may or may not have ACS. Okay, let's try the Timmy score first. I'll plug in her data. She's 72. And since we didn't get into the meds yet, let's say she's on daily aspirin. Her age, angina, and aspirin gives her a Timmy score of three, which equals 13% risk of death or MI in the next two weeks. Okay. What about the heart score? For our patient, the heart score is moderate, five to six points based on suspicious story, non ST elevation changes, age, and one risk factor. That moderate category equates to 12 to 16% risk of major adverse cardiac event in the next six weeks. So that's similar. And the GRACE? Well, GRACE is tough in this situation because it asks for specific vital signs and physical exam findings like RAILS. Remember, this is often used for super sick patients, so let's skip it for now.
1: Sounds reasonable. So both heart and Timmy scores are moderate 13 to 15% of major cardiac event. That's not something to ignore, and it makes sense to admit her and trend that her troponin. But honestly, I probably would have done it without the tools. Feels like the risk stratifying tools didn't add much more value.
0: We asked Greg how he uses these tools like the Timmy or the heart scores in his practice. So I think that it's, I use those risk scores
3: as adjuncts to my clinical impression. I think that what the other thing they do is they force you to have a regimented approach to how you're thinking about the patient. And just by being forced to go through a checklist of various things, I I think it really enforces a more complete history taking and a more complete thought process and makes you miss
0: fewer things. That's a really valid point that Greg gives us. We can be swept away sometimes in a patient's story, sometimes getting sidetracked by details that are really hard to tell if they're relevant or not. The idea of these scores as a checklist is a kind of interesting one.
1: Yeah. And I I would also add that these scores kind of give us the same lingo to talk to our cardiology colleagues with. I think I learned this kind of the hard way as an intern. I still remember it was a Saturday morning and I called the cardiology console and I blurted out all these random bits and info about the patient that had just been admitted overnight. And the cardiologist very nicely said back to me, okay, Shreya, so what I think you're trying to tell me as this this is a middle-aged female with X risk factors, who's presenting with acute progressive chest pain and has a TIMI score of four. And therefore, you're asking me if we should cath her, right? And I was like, yes, yes, that is exactly (laughs) what I mean to ask.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's good to have some shared
0: language. So let's summarize our second learning point. Tools like TIMI, heart, or grace scores can be helpful in risk stratifying patients who may have ACS. TIMI is the best studied and still most widely used. Grace incorporates hemodynamics while the others don't, and Heart is like the new kid on the block and appears to be better at ruling out ACS than the others did in the ED. Despite these differences, in practice, all three can be used for patients who present with a story that may be consistent with ACS and you're trying to determine how risky they are. But remember, these tools should only be used to supplement and not replace our clinical reasoning.
1: Right, because it's true that a patient with a low risk can still have plaque rupture and patients with a high score might not. Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian-approved meals right to your door, ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to Protein Plus to Keto. And don't forget, they have 60-plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites, so you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital's <laughs> cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouth-watering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With Factor, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to Factormeals.com slash 50 Use the code Coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code Coriam50 at Factormeals.com slash All right, so our patient gets admitted for further evaluation. Now, when should we get our second troponin? Do we wait six to eight hours like we're taught in med school or... I've seen four hours. I've seen 12 hours. What's the right answer here?
3: So uh, I think that if I have a troponin that is already on the concerning side, I make sure to repeat the next one pretty quickly. And we know the kinetics of a troponin, of the troponin in the blood after a coronary occlusion is that it will rise quickly. And you get a lot of information by repeating a second troponin an hour or two hours or three hours afterwards. And waiting for this eight-hour period or 12-hour period or whatever is delaying your
0: making a diagnosis, and it's it's just not necessary. Yeah. So a good example of what Greg is talking about here are the rule-out ACS protocols in the ED, the ADAPT trial probably being one of the more well-known examples. They looked at patients and found that if they were low risk, like Timmy score 0 or 1, they could be safely ruled out for ACS and discharged home if they had two negative troponins over just two hours.
1: Oh, nice. And unfortunately, though, our patient doesn't qualify as low risk based on her Timmy. So let's say there's no clinical changes and we get our second troponin at 6 hours, which comes back at 0.07, which is now positive and slightly higher than her first troponin of 0.05. So how do we interpret this slight bump?
0: So this could still be anything. The key questions at this point are, when did our chest pain start in relation to these labs, and how has the clinical situation changed?
2: Yeah, exactly, Marty. This slow creep-up might mean we just haven't seen the inflection point in a plaque rupture in front that's happening before our eyes, but it can also easily be seen in the low-grade supply-demand mismatch of a CHF exacerbation. Right.
1: Well, I hope there's some exam or history findings that can help you differentiate But if it's tricky, yeah, go ahead, repeat a trope in two to three hours, get a repeat EKG to evaluate for any ST changes.
2: Okay, so let's try a different scenario. Let's say our same patient from earlier has been experiencing stuttering chest pain on and off in the ED, and her second troponin a few hours later comes back, and it's now five instead. Hmm. Yeah, so this is obviously
0: quite different from the prior situation. A jump from 0.05 to 5 is a hundredfold increase. Most people at this point are calling for help, right? Cards is on the phone. The cath lab staff are donning their lead. This is what these docs live for.
1: Okay, <laughs> the news team is assembling. But let me throw a curveball here. What if the repeat EKG still doesn't have any ST changes along with that elevation troponin? I think we're still doing the same thing about talking to the cath team, but is there anything else we're missing?
2: One of the pearls I learned from cardiologists is that a blocked left circumflex artery is the most common electrically silent MI. So if the clinical picture is suggestive of a real ACS event, like in this scenario when the trope went from 0.05 to 5, but the EKG doesn't show any ST changes, you should go searching for ST elevations. Get a posterior EKG that can show a left circ STEMI, and while you're at it, you can also get a right-sided EKG for an RCA occlusion. If you've never done them before and you don't know where the leads go, you can just search for them on Google Images. Or on our social media,
0: we have a 12 Lead Thursday series and we just put together a post that walks you through this.
1: Right. Getting these leads can definitely help our interventionists because say you give them a culprit lesion, they can plan the case around it. So, for example, if they suspect a left circ or a left coronary lesion, they can quickly cannulate the RCA first, make sure there aren't any surprises over there before shooting the left main and spending more time opening up the left-sided blockage.
0: Awesome. Not going to lie, guys, I love saving our case patients. (laughs) Uh, Almost like we're doing this in real life. We are. Close. Very close. But okay, real question. Let's get back to our case with two different versions of the story. Can we talk about the idea of trending troponins until they peak in both cases? The first with a slow incremental rise in the clinically stable patient, and the second case where. Let's say they saw a lesion in the left circ and they stented it.
1: Right. Let's see what Greg had to say with the first situation of the slowly uptrending troponin.
3: If you have a heart failure exacerbation in a a guy who just doesn't take his Lasix and he comes into the hospital and his trope is 0.03 and then you check a couple of hours later and it's like 0.06 and then you check a couple of hours later and it's 0.1. Yes, it's going up. But the trajectory of that increase is not a plaque rupture trajectory. And your clinical history is not the clinical history that's suggestive of an acute coronary syndrome. And so in a patient like that, I don't really see what additional utility you're getting from trending the super low level troponin until it's officially going down.
1: Right. So Greg's point here relates to the discussion of our first pearl. If your pretest probability of a plaque rupture is low based on your story... The troponin is slowly creeping up, checking until the trope finally goes up, say from 0.091 to down to point zero nine zero isn't really adding much. And given the etiology of this troponin leak, hey, it might very well go back up to point zero nine two, which might be the most frustrating thing on this planet.
2: Ugh, I know. That's the worst. I totally hear what Greg is saying, and trust me, I absolutely respect his opinion. But I do want to point out that some may feel like it's good form to just trend to peak in all cases. Having troponin in the blood is abnormal, and having an increase in troponin is still abnormal. But there's no prospective study that looked at this, so it needs to be a case-specific decision. For sure.
0: All right, so what about the second lady who we valiantly saved in our hashtag core I am cath lab hashtag
1: what up cardio Twitter? Oh, God. Marty is speaking in Twitter again. We need to hurry up before things get ugly.
2: (laughs) Okay. So to answer Marty's hashtag question, many advocate for trending troponins in patients post-cath. Because if you take a graph of troponin over time and estimate the area under the curve, that can actually be used as a proxy for estimating infarct size and even mortality. That information can be helpful for us in prognostication.
1: Right. And prognostication is a great bridge to our next pearl. But first, let's summarize this section. So the pattern of rise in the troponin is useful in distinguishing who needs immediate intervention. And don't forget about posterior EKG leads in electrically silent MIs. Those are most commonly due to left circumflex infarctions.
2: So let's go all the way back to our initial case. Elderly woman who presents with chest pain and you had a negative but detectable troponin. Let's take a completely different course and say that when you're taking the history, she describes a cough, a low-grade fever, and you look at the x-ray, and she's got this whopping left lower lobe pneumonia.
0: Boom! We no longer care about the troponin, right? I mean, I've definitely been guilty of leaving a detectable troponin off the final assessment of patients I've admitted with severe sepsis before. Wait, are we still using that term? (laughs) Anyway, so what? We all know that this isn't due to a primary cardiac issue, so why do we care about a little type 2 MI?
2: So I hear you, Marty, but a few important points here. First, it's important not to dismiss all sepsis cases as type 2 MI. Critical illness could trigger plaque rupture or stress cardiomyopathy, which could show up as EKG changes and positive proponents. Fine. Fair.
1: Yeah. And also, Marty, the whole point of this pearl is to drive home the idea that anyone with a detectable troponin, regardless of the etiology, has a higher risk of mortality And the same patient without a detectable troponin.
0: I sense a Greg comment
3: coming. Mm -hmm. Because even in healthy cohorts, people who have detectable troponins die younger and do worse. And so the fact that you have a troponin that is detectable is in and of itself, even if you are coming in with sepsis or you're coming in with a stroke or you're coming in with, you know, just leg pain. A detectable troponin portends a worse outcome than an undetectable one. And there have been lots of studies looking at healthy cohorts of people with troponins that are detectable in their blood and seeing how they do over time and they die sooner than people who don't.
1: Another group of patients where we hear about this all the time is an end-stage renal disease. I hear from my residents, hey, this patient had an elevated troponin, they have end-stage renal disease and therefore it's a quote-unquote false positive.
2: My follow-up question is a false positive for what? Troponin I is still specific to cardiac myocytes. A troponin still indicates myocardial damage. You don't just get false positives because of end-stage renal disease. Although, because troponin is renally clear, it will take longer to do downtrend.
1: Right. To hammer this home, any positive troponin in end-stage renal disease, regardless of the mechanism of injury, has been shown to predict a two- to five-fold increase in all-cause mortality. I guess you
0: guys make a solid point here. So while these detectable troponin levels aren't necessarily pointing us toward a primary cardiac etiology, and we really should convince ourselves that we're not missing anything before we do that, they're clearly telling us something about these patients' overall risk of death.
2: That's right. After all, cardiovascular disease accounts for roughly 50% of deaths in patients with chronic renal failure. So these patients are definitely sick, even if they're
0: currently clinically stable. I think a useful way to think about this group of patients is how you might sign them out to your night float colleagues. Patient is X-year-old woman admitted for sepsis with detectable troponin on arrival, thought to be type 2, now stable on antibiotics. This communicates a higher level of risk, right? So when they get the called for chest pain or hypotension or whatever, the night float starts
2: with that leg up.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great example.
2: So in summary, don't write off a detectable troponin in any setting these patients have a higher risk of mortality regardless of the etiology of troponin.
1: Yeah, this is not an NBD situation. Let's hear Greg's last thoughts.
3: I think about a troponin as being either due to a coronary occlusion or not due to a coronary occlusion. And if you make that distinction, if that's the distinction that you're trying to make in your mind, it makes you think about patients differently. And I think that all of the, the way that you, you teach people about diagnostic and clinical reasoning, It's about giving the, it's about giving yourself a way to frame a patient in your mind and get closer to making a diagnosis and closer to getting the right treatment for somebody. And so I'm always thinking about when I see a troponin, do I think this patient has a coronary occlusion? And if you frame it all in that way, it really simplifies your, your thinking quite a bit.
0: Thanks, Greg. And to review the takeaways, we have the privilege of inviting our reviewer, Dr. Ernie Mazzaferi. He is the Charles A. Bush Professor of Cardiovascular Medicine and Medical Director of the Ross Hospital at The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center.
5: Hi, this is Ernie Mazzaferi. Thank you, Marty, for having me on the podcast today. I'm going to talk a little bit about the uh, pearls behind the story of troponin. Um, the, the first uh, question really is, what aspects of the history should raise concern in a patient with a positive troponin? You know, troponin, uh, from, from my eyes, really is helpful when it's negative, right? It's a great test to rule out disease, not necessarily a specific test to rule in disease. So uh, when I'm looking at a patient with positive troponin, I want to know if they're still having ongoing chest pain, and that really changes things for me. So, you know, anytime you have doubt about a test result, go back to the bedside and talk to the patient. And I'm always pushing the fellows and the residents in the middle of the night, Tell me what the patient's doing right now. I understand they have a positive troponin. But a patient with ongoing chest pain and a positive troponin is an issue. A patient who's totally chest pain-free and has a small troponin elevation, different story. Second pearl, uh, risk uh, stratifying tools that we use. You know, truthfully, um, we try and keep it somewhat simple. And I think the heart score is something mostly that we see used by our emergency department colleagues to risk stratify patients. Occasionally, that'll migrate up to the floors. Uh, the gray score is useful, but a little bit of a complex tool, especially in the middle of the night. So, we really push the residents and the fellows to use the TIMI risk score. It's a good uh, indicator of 14 day prognosis, and it helps us make decisions at times as, as to high risk patients going to the cath lab, which, as an interventional cardiologist, I think you realize that we take a lot of people to the cath lab. Um, in regards to trending troponins, you know, truthfully, I think this um, has come and gone over the years that we used to trend troponins on all patients to catch a peak troponin because the guidelines show you the nice graph where you can see outcome based on your peak troponin elevation. But what we really found over the years is that you may miss the peak elevation because you may check it at the wrong time. And so, the ejection fraction, so every patient needs an ejection fraction who has ACS before they leave the hospital, is a much better tool for us to risk stratify our patients prior to discharge. So. Uh, in general, uh, with rare exceptions, we don't we don't check troponins on a regular basis. Okay, so as far as prognostics, you know, there's a lot of debate about type 2 non-STEMIs and type 1 non-STEMIs and, and what that means. I think the bottom line is, is that if somebody has an elevated troponin, whether it be from a type 1 non-STEMI or a type 2 non-STEMI, they're going to have a worse prognosis than if they had a negative troponin. You know, we often get a little bit cavalier about our end-stage renal disease patients having a positive troponin and say it's just from the renal disease. It's usually not. There's something causing strain in the myocardium. There's some type of injury to the myocardium. And ultimately, that's a poor prognosis for those patients. So don't ignore it. You don't always need to treat them as type 1 non-STEMIs, but but make sure you pay attention to it and risk stratify your patients appropriately. For our Throwback Pearl,
2: let's talk about our alcohol treatment podcast about treatment meds. What's the first-line treatment for alcohol use disorder?
1: yeah i I really love this podcast, and more so, I think I was struck by this that statistic. I know it's in just one paper, but you know they found that less than ten percent of patients who meet criteria for treatment for alcohol use disorder get a single prescription. So that really struck me, and I think the my main change I've seen in myself is actually in the hospital setting where I find that when patients are admitted with alcohol withdrawal, I'm having that conversation much earlier with them about the menu of options that they have. And I feel much more empowered to start naltrexone. You know, as long as they don't have cirrhosis or potential use of opioids in the future, um, I've had some really meaningful conversations with patients in the hospital.
0: I totally agree, Shreya. My residents think I'm a broken record with this, but I discuss medications to treat alcohol use disorder with everyone who I think might benefit from them. We should also mention that Acamprosate is the other consensus first-line medication. The tricky thing is that it's dosed three times daily.
1: Yeah, and you know, I didn't really think of a acamprosate as a first-line med, but then the number needed a treat of 12 to prevent any drinking kind of helped me think about it differently. Honestly, I haven't started it yet, um, but maybe in patients who I encounter that have a potential use of opioids in the future, and I think with shared decision-making, just making sure that they're okay, you know, taking it three times a day, I might start it. All right, if you enjoyed listening to our show, give us a review on iTunes. It really means a lot to us follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We work really hard on these podcasts, so we'd love to hear from you. You can also send us an email at coreimpodcasts at gmail.com. Let us know what we're doing right and how we can improve for your learning. And as always, opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. Do not use this podcast for medical advice. Instead, see your own healthcare provider for medical care. All right. Thanks for joining us.
0: See you guys next Wednesday.
1: Take care. Wait, Dave. Can you say it again? I liked how you said it in uh, the first version, where you were nope. like offended.
2: <laughs> my follow-up question is a false positive for what? <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. What <laughs> or what? Sorry. In turn. Uh, <laughs> my follow-up question is a false positive for what? Oh, now it just sounds weird. I just like yeah. I couldn't get over it. Do, do, yeah, um, it's you just just say it regular.